The Protect Your Neck Podcast, Episode 200, UFC on ESPN10 Recap, an interview with Nate Evans from MMA True Fan on their George St. Pierre documentary. Hot air hangs like a dead man from a white oak tree, people sitting on porches thinking how things used to be, dark night. It's a dark night Dark night It's a dark night What is up, everybody? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Tom. Analysts work. You can find it at MMAJunkie.com. But on this year program, the Protect Your Neck Podcast, we break down high-level MMA. That's what we're going to do here today. Um, tonight, whenever you're listening to this, uh, it will definitely be before next week's fights, as will another breakdown episode, but we're going to be recapping UFC on ESPN10, or hashtag UFC Vegas 2 uh, recapping results, pick some plays off that, uh, a couple notes, and then I'll be kicking it over to a previously recorded interview just a couple days ago, nothing too crazy, uh, not that it's we're talking about time-sensitive Topics, uh, interview I did with Nate Evans at MMA True TRU Fan on Twitter is where you can find them and links to their stuff. Of course, they did an audio documentary recently on George St. Pierre. That was fun. Talk to Nate about that. I'll save that for them because it, it's a really... Uh, it's a really uh, solid interview as far as, you know, George St. Pierre stuff. We even talk about Mark Coleman stuff. Talk a lot of pride stuff. Um, even some uh, Kevin Randleman and lesser known uh, um, stories about him, I guess. Um, and fun ones, too. We, we end on a nice note there. And uh, so hopefully you guys stick around for that. That's going to be at the uh, attached to the end. Probably the bulk of this episode because I'm not going to go too long here. Uh, my voice is getting a little better, but... You know, uh, I'm still still fighting that. Uh, the body just, you know, st- still getting it back in order. Don't worry, not going to go into detail there. But but appreciate your guys' uh, well wishes. Got some really nice messages. Um, even uh, even some, uh, you know, some, some nice donations uh, on the old uh, MixedMartialAnalyst.com where you can find the links for the PayPal to, uh, if you want to contribute to the show. But again, you, you don't have to. And um, you guys just sending nice words or sharing or just listening is more than enough. This is episode number 200. So really, this is... Um, I, if life wasn't moving too fast, I, I, I would have maybe tried to put a bigger show with some more, um, you know, former guest co-hosts for you um, in that regard. But no, uh, regardless of what uh, is on the show or not, this the show is uh, for you guys, as they all are. But really appreciate you guys, seriously. Um, uh, the, you know... As I say on the Twitter handle, which, by the way, it's the same social handle for all platforms if you want to follow the podcast, it really does help. Uh, don't spam your feeds, and it really does help here. Something you can do for free uh, at the PYN podcast. But kind of as the descriptor on many of them, especially on the Twitter, it says you know, a safe haven you know, for hardcores, degenerates, and just technique nerds who just kind of love this game. And uh, I check all those boxes, man. I'm a degenerate. I'm a nerd. uh just a, a fight fan, um, you know, all those things. And um, I'm usually <laughs> halfway crawling across the finish line by the time I talk to you guys. But make no mistake about it, I, I am very grateful for this platform, for you guys, the show, etc. Everything that revolves around it. it, it it's a hangout spot when, 
when when you know uh, especially nowadays right you know where a lot of us are locked down and whatnot or it's a reality that we're kind of living with that could you know happen again and you know um these podcasts and these these voices in your ear become extra crucial and um as somebody who uh, was social distancing voluntarily or not in a way just because of my anti-socialist behavior and just my kind of drive and focus on my career my you know from relationships to friendships are hard to cultivate and the existing ones definitely suffered um this this podcast here became a you know and even the interwebs and the internet and twitter and these people that i chat with on there um you know y'all become uh closer than you 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 would realize or maybe some of us would like to give credit or credence to in our head but that that is kind of the world we live in and um, I appreciate you guys. Sorry if I'm getting long-winded here. Uh, we're going to get to the recap of UFC on ESPN 10. Uh, ESPN 10. But uh, I just want to say thank you guys so much for anybody who's listened, to anybody who's helped, anybody who's co-hosted. Um, you know, I hope, hope to get plenty of you back on. There's plenty of people I haven't had on yet that I, I definitely want to get on. Um, so that'll continue on. Everything will continue on. I'll continue to, uh, do this for you for free. Um, you know, even if we do come up with more creative ways, uh, to support the show, like uh, patrons and so forth. Again, I'm always going to make it a point to have these breakdown shows for free and as much of everything for free as, uh, uh, all, you know, here on out and for always, um, just like, you know, you know find my breakdowns on junkie. And uh, things I'm working on in the future, um, you know, as far as betting and stepping stuff up on that end, um, I mean that as well too, folks. And uh, don't you worry for that. Um, that'll be free and it won't change the stuff I'm doing for Junkie or for this podcast. So uh, takes a lot of time, believe me. It's a, it's a gamble. Uh, I get sick of hearing myself, but y'all make it worth it. Thank you so very much. All right. Um, that's kind of the shouts are out of the way there. Uh, UFC and ESPN 10, I think we're at 7-3 and three overall on picks. Only 10 fights there. 1-1 um, one and one for the parlays that we played. Uh, so I just kind of broke even, like I said there on the whole Twitter sphere. Um, I didn't take anything straight, and I'll explain why. On, on the two borderline straight plays I left on the table, depending on caveats, uh, where I left you guys off with la last time, um, which I don't do often but it's kind of what it was it was a bad card for betting um going in and, and coming out i think for the most part and uh zero props i didn't play any props um but all right let's 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 flip over to those results shall we uh cynthia calvia defeated jessica I in the main event unanimous decision i didn't have an issue with that um I really wasn't watching as too close to score, to be honest, folks. I kind of missed a lot of the first round. Everybody was, like, like leaving and saying their goodbyes on Twitter before the main event started, which was kind of sad, um, as if the main event didn't get shit on enough. But, uh, you know, it's what it is. And uh, I um, watched the first round, and I didn't watch it too close, but I kind of came away. It was close, but I came away with the impression that maybe Jessica won it, only because I looked at Cynthia Calvia's face and – her face was just really bad. Like, I was like, oh, man, Calvillo's falling apart. She's going to lose this fight. You know, uh, just because, again, folks, I wasn't watching the first round. I was, like, doing laundry and stuff around the house. And anyways, and I'm, like, looking at Calvillo's face. Like, wow, I don't see that face from her that often. That is not good body language. Um, sure enough, she pulls it together. Has really strong rounds two, rounds three. 
Uh, I think round four had a, you know, as far as the rounds that I watched, had a strongest round, uh, argument to go to her. I saw people arguing either round four or round one. Um, so I guess from that perspective, if you had people, aside from the judges who we always give shit to, justfully or not, um, arguing that, then hypothetically, especially, again, there's always that thing, right, folks? It's not necessarily that I feel it's a certain way when I give out a scorecard. It's that we're so, myself included, our condition of bad judging that things that maybe shouldn't or don't win a scorecard in our eyes and bias, um, some of us, especially if we're trying to step out of that bias, will score, still score the other way because we understand that even though it's not how we feel, it's unfortunately the judges' track records, how they feel, right? Um, so by that logic, I, I really couldn't have got mad at anybody saying 2-2. Two, two. But yeah, I mean, I, I was, for someone who barely watched the fight, I gave a reluctant 49-46, barely giving I the fourth round. But um, yeah, it was a bad outing. She was trying to counter. She was much slower. Um, Calvillo was able to, you know, find herself on the feet and then uh, stick more diligently to the wrestling, which had been a criticism of hers from even supporters of hers like myself. Granted, I did not pick her this fight, but I, I usually, like I pointed out before, pick Calvillo a lot. I like her, still like her. But yeah, uh, she found that uh, proverbial chink in the armor. Uh, although, again, just guy, like I noted before, she, she can't be t- uh, taken down. Um, it was the get-ups, and she just wasn't urgent enough, you know. I cited the underhook and the two-on-one get-up, and she went to both of those. But she stayed a little too stagnant when she got to her base um, on the two-on-one. And it was she actually did a little, she was a little too stagnant on the Araujo fight, um, but she was able to uh, baseball grip and turn into her without getting her back taken. Um, I did note, or at least to myself, I'm not sure if I how, how vocal I was, but yeah, Calvillo more of a dangerous back taker than Ada Ujo, but um, that's not necessarily why she got to the back. It was because Jess Guy just kind of stalled out in those spots. She did the two-on-one and got to her base, but she didn't pop up. you got to be urgent from Turtle. That's the thing. Even proponents of the Turtle, like myself, you still have to be very urgent from it. You know, I remember doing Turtle drills. Uh, Coach Neil Melanson would have me do it, and a lot of times we wouldn't even go in for the sweep. You just have the partner shadow you from the turtle, and you have to um, be able to move and shift without you know exposing yourself too much and opening them up for hooks to get yourself debased and back taken. Um, but Jess Guy had the two on one, and she just kind of sat there. Even with the underhook, she made the mistake first, going too high in the underhook, and then she did the, she adjusted it, kind of like the note I always say, where you go under the ass on that single leg underhook get up from half guard. You're sitting up into the single. <coughs> The problem is she didn't keep with the, uh, um, I don't want to say the leg reap, but yeah, you almost kind of reap the knees. You come up for that, that signal, uh, single to take away their leverage and gain your own as you're coming up to your base. And um, she disconnected from her, you know, uh, her left leg to Calvillo's right leg, which allowed it to turn into more of a front headlock situation where Calvillo obviously works really well from. So, yeah, no issue there. Good on Calvillo. Who the hell knows what's going on in that division? Um, and, uh, yeah, um, we'll, we'll see what happens to, you know, Just Guy. But that, that had to have been frustrating. I know um, my dude Eric Nixit there was trying to, you know, was trying to speak to your fighter. But, you know, you can use whatever verbiage. You can slot this verbiage out for that. But sometimes it, it's just tough to connect, man. Ultimately, 
which is even though while you know when I do give credit to the corners like when I was giving credit to Whitman for Gaethje's performance, ultimately you can't give the corner too much credit, uh, and not that they're exempt from criticism, obviously. But at the end of the day, I guess the point what I'm trying to say here is that it's up to the fighter, man, uh, what they're gonna do. And um, yeah, man, uh, you know Jessica was just definitely just kind of almost like in her head and like just kind of accepted. I don't know if accepting losing is too strong of a characterization from an outsider, obviously, but like accepted the pace, accepted the strategy, and and you know, very uh, very frustrating. And I didn't play her, by the way. Um, kind of like uh, Gabe Killian asked, "You still gonna play her?" And she's at plus money now. Yeah, she did go to plus money, um, which maybe I said I would put a light play in that case, but I didn't even do that, folks. Kind of like I said on Twitter, um, in case anybody was gonna tell me. But I, the podcast obviously came out before the weigh-in, and you know, just way too many flags and, and, and intangibles to be uh, to be soitin' on a fight like that, you know. And um, and I will say, man, I mean, except for Carl Roberson, I, I, obviously, Jess Guy is not the, the fighter to die on the hill. She, you know. Doesn't help herself a lot of times to be kind, and uh, yeah, people obviously take a lot of shots and whatnot, and. Uh, I mean, I wasn't taking a shot. I just posted the, uh, you know, that's one way to break the ice just because I wasn't expecting the audio on that clip when Dana posted the up-close weigh-in shots that he normally does. But, you know, in this whole age of, like, you know, let's go back in time, get an old tweet, and measure it up to some statement that you said and crucify you for it. In a lot of those cases, it's justified. And a lot of times, it's, I don't even know if it's well-intentioned or fair. If I'm being honest, even if it's an unsympathetic person who I'm not going to defend. And we just got to be careful with that in this culture, you know, and and, and careful not to be hypocrites, um, although we all are at heart. <laughs> um, but, we, you know, with the uh, pandemic, I think we all expected a bunch of things to happen. And these fighters aren't in the best of cases. You know, we're talking on one hand, we're talking about human rights and these things. And I'm talking about it, too, folks. And I'm for it. I'm on that side of things. Uh, BLM or otherwise, so believe me, I ain't I ain't hating. Just let's let's as Usman says, you know, let's keep that same energy because on the same note, you know, a lot of the same people, and this is myself included, I'm talking about. So this isn't shade. I'm I'm grouped in here, folks. You know, we're talking about fighters' rights and and pay and this that and what they're having to do during a pandemic and this quiet movement that's going on and weighing in on that. And obviously, I'm with the fighters and I want them to get more money. You know. And all that, but if we're going to recognize fighter rights and this and that, let's not crucify them when they're out here trying to perform in a pandemic when half the shit's closed down, um, you know, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, let, and not act like, again, we're all the same people here because I, I check all those boxes, folks. I get a third box here. We're likely also the same people that even when the pandemic or when the social unrest isn't going on, we were questioning weight cutting in relation to help the fighters, obviously. We're concerned about their health, and we want the best performances for the fighters, the promotions, the fans, us, everybody in between. Um, that being said, if we're going to stay in line with that, maybe we shouldn't be criticizing the fighters so much when they're doing the dangerous, they're, they're being requested to main weight. And, you know, and again, you know, whether it's the Scottie Pippen thing about the pay or... You know, again, more relative to MMA. Oh, you guys signed the contract. Don't complain if you signed the contract, George Marshall Like, people up in his comments, like, giving him shit for wanting more money. Um, 
you know, which is a whole other fucking story. Again, let's let's keep that same energy, and God forbid, let's give some leniency to the fighters. I'm not telling you to be a fan of anybody, uh, <laughs> much less Jessica I, who, you know, yes, she did say some comments, and yes, she is missing weight twice, too, in a way, um, like the aforementioned Roberson. Um, so, again, I'm not saying fucking treat these people with kids' gloves. You know, don't criticize them. Just saying, you know... Easy on the fighters in general. I don't think that's that's a controversial statement, is it? Marvin Vittori defeated Carl Roberson, speaking of which. Thank you, Marvin. You helped me break even. It was a crucial parlay piece for many, uh, me and many. Uh, the Italians, Danny, va bene, non tribicubare. I know, I know, we shouldn't have worried about it, but uh, thank you for making it okay. Um, yeah, man, and then, like, uh, that was a true tweet, by the way. Uh, I'm sure Goza George remember that one about the... Italian restaurant thing, which I'm not, like, you know, holding against Vittori. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm seeing just a lot of, like, hate for Vittori. Apparently, he said, like, some autism comment or something. I missed that um, uh, and whatnot. Um, but then there's also just seems like hate that has nothing to do with any kind of um, thing like that. Like, people were just hating on him because he was Italian or he got angry or something, which was really weird. Um, so like, it almost like got racial uh, up in my comments and I'm like, Jesus Christ, people like, first of all, like I, I, uh, I wasn't offended, um, in the tweet when I tweeted it, but things can read a bunch of different ways. Um, I just think it was just kind of crazy, especially when you think of Vittori and how, you know, <laughs> this, you know, the, the lobby, uh, image in our head for him, you know, going in the back of a restaurant. I, I tweeted essentially, he went, I think it was after the Adesanya fight in Arizona, him and his friends tried to get Italian food. And, you know, it was like the, 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 the scene from Goodfellas in the sense of, uh, you know, or the commentary from Goodfellas when Ray Liotta's like, you ask for spaghetti and pasta, you get egg noodles and ketchup. Like, except Vittori didn't respond to it in kind. Him and his friends went back and demanded that, that they were allowed to cook and were granted um, and were allowed to cook their own meal. So the, if anything, I think that's kind of funny and, and, and cool in a way. I can appreciate that from actually like knowing some Italians and knowing how, how, uh, how, how they're wired. Um, and I'm talking about Italian Italians from Italy, not just American Italians, um, as far as my family friends go. But uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, so thanks, thank you, Marvin. Charles Rosa defeated Kevin Aguilar. That sunk my battleship, but man, I... I a hard time being seeing, uh, getting mad at Charles Rosa um, winning the fight. I have to rewatch it. I saw people, you know, upset at the decision, and, and fundamentally, I get it because you think about it: who did the damage, right? Um, but then again, as a guy who tries to also be on the other side of your argument, some guys damage more, or what if it's a headbutt? And it actually was, uh, you know, not all the damage. Like the damage on his left eye came from the right hands that he was landing. And underneath the right eye came from the jabs um, that um, Aguilar was landing. But yeah, the eyebrow cut and aesthetic damage that was dripping was from a headbutt. So there's that. And, you know, leg kick should count for something. However, so should body punches. And Kevin Aguilar was landing body punches the whole time. And it's so bad that, like, again, talking about... You might have thought maybe for because I was biased on a play or the fact that I was highlighting, which was true, Kevin Aguilar's body work with my tweets that I ended up leaning 29-28 Rosa because Rosa stole the end of the rounds. And like I said, folks, it's not so much what who I think should win. It's that whether we agree with it or not, MMA judging is what what the fuck it is. 
And if you're paying attention, whether we agree with it or not, there's just things that that you know um, that can bullshit them. Whether it's flashy stuff, whether it lands or not. And again, you can criticize Charles Rosa of that, but John Jones been doing it for freaking years, and he's one of the best, right? So I mean, these are just these are just truths, whether we like it or not. Um, and body work doesn't get rewarded, so that's why even though I'm Mr. Body Work, when I'm turning in the, the Twitter scorecard for whatever that's worth. Um, coming from my ass, yeah, it's not necessarily going to re- reflect the body work as much as it should. Or when it does, like, you know, boy, like, boy. Uh, it's, you know, he's going to fucking lose a split again, you know, like, just, it's just the way it goes. So that's why I cited, um, and that, you know, you know, like I said, whether I like somebody or I play, I'll probably, I'll probably, you know, kind of counter my own, you know, try to overcorrect the steering wheel a bit on my side. So, yeah, I'm going to lean a bit to the other guy. But, yeah, it went to the other guy. I'm not mad about it. Good on Charles Rosa. And Kevin Aguilar had to step up anyways. And I think a lot of people were just down on Kevin Aguilar because they've been so high on him. So, you know, I think I was feeling a lot of that backlash. But lest we forget, folks, I think I maybe picked Kevin Aguilar maybe fucking once in his whole UFC career. So I, I wasn't a guy who was, like, you know, last person off the Titanic. Like, no, I... Your complaints about him is the reason why I've been consistently, for the most part, picking against him. I just thought that it was a bad matchup on paper, hence the line being what it was and me jumping on it. But hey, props to props to Rosa, uh, Boston Miss. Uh, Andre Feely defeated Charles Jourdain, split decision. Uh, didn't think it should be a split decision, but you know, again, close round that involves striking. Um, even though the stereotype is these are boxing judges, well, newsflash, folks, these boxing judges that we criticize, they, they can't judge striking that well in MMA either. So, um, from that standpoint, it wasn't a surprise. But uh, no, you know, Feely recovered really uh, fast, and then didn't just steal the round and do the takedown and steal the round with take. It was a damaging takedown with some damaging ground and pound. In what was a close round, minus uh, Sands the knockdown. So, um, if someone wanted to give a 37 Feely, I guess I wouldn't be outraged. Um, he made it a much trickier round to score. My scorecard was 29 28, though. Um, figuring uh, and not disagreeing, by the way, not mad. Just saying, figuring the judges would have given Georgiane the first round based on the knockdown out of somewhat of a principle, uh, whether you agree with that principle or not. Um, and then giving Feely, you know, rounds two, he showed some really good footwork, especially at the end of round two. You know, Feely starts to get his range. And um, that ride that he showed, too, was awesome. That crisscross wrist ride and pinning right below the knee. Uh, Felder spot on with the commentary. Felder and, um, you know, I always love that combo and lo- love both guys. But Felder and Fitzgerald, uh, another good job. Um, um, yeah, all right. Uh, excuse me. Um, so thank you, Mr. Feely, there for cashing that Feely Vittori. Should have jumped on Espinosa, but um, because it was more not trusting Espinosa than being scared of De La Rosa. Again, no offense, De La Rosa. You know, at least he got you know the opportunity to lose four in a row. If in fact he's going to be cut now, which would make sense. But yeah, he just, he just never impressed me. Um, whether it was just, you know the athletic, the umph to kind of get to where he needed to for his game. Maria Agapova, um, impressive, but again, size mismatch. Poor Hannah Cyphers, as uh, Zane Simon said from the Bloody Elbow account, reverse Chris Lee, been losing twice in two weeks. 
Um, but as soon as Agapova started talking with the Eastern European accent, you, I'm like, oh, Jesus, you could tell. From the the media to the, uh, as Alex Davis tweeted, to the uh, all the, you know, I wanted to say backdoor demons, but that's probably a, don't go to that, don't type that in your search bar, folks. <laughs> the managers and the, what do you call, Jesus Christ, wow. Talking about a woman's fight, Dan, pull up, pull up. <laughs> um, but, like, as soon as she had the Eastern European accent, like, oh, here we go. And then, you know, because mainly as, as me, my man, uh, Jordan, uh, at JYork87, uh, my, my, my dude Jordan uh, Jordan Killian always says, uh, we all say, whether it's fucking Marina Moroz or any of these Eastern European chicks, Shevchenko, like, all the horny dudes are in the Instagram comments, like, please, Mishke, Mere, Mich, Mor. <laughs> it's just the most disgusting shit. And uh, Agapova is just, I don't even have to look at her Instagram. You go to it right now, and I guarantee you it's just fucking rose emojis from middle-aged creeps. Like, it's fucking happening. So, yeah, that parade will be going down. <laughs> Jesus, Dan, way to give her. I'm just not hating on her. I like her. I'm just saying it's, she's going to get branded with all the fucking creeps now. It doesn't matter if she's good or not. Marab Devine <laughs> really defeated my man Gustavo Lopez, who uh, it seemed to impress a lot, hopefully, because he really is—he's got a fun game. It's just tough matchup, obviously on short notice, obviously. Um, and um, and yeah, and then great notes by—I um, think it was Capoza saying that you know, as much as I like Davalos really and his wrestling's good, uh, and it's like the judo sambo based wrestling, of course, uh, he. Yeah, he's not holding positions or playing it. He's like, like I said to Capoza, he's not quite Tim Elliott level yet where he's like grappling himself into holes. But, you know, he could in the sense of better guys where he's really going to need to hold those positions. Um, so, yeah, uh, for despite being a dominant win, it was one of those where it's like if you know what you're looking at, you're like, hmm, if we don't see certain things start filling in, um, that could be problematic for Marab. And I like Marab, by the way. And uh, hopefully uh, Gustavo gets a... Fun matchup with a full camp, man. That that guy deserves it. Um, Julia Avila Avila destroyed uh, Gina Mazzani. That was tough to watch, but uh, Raging Panda got it done. Uh, Tyson Nam, that was awesome uh, versus uh, Zaruch. Zaruch Zaruch is on the floor, not on fire. Adashiv. Um, yeah, man. I I would have still probably took the shot on Tyson Nam, even though I was getting scared, as it said in the podcast, just because the the line was getting close there to even. And um, in hindsight, it really should have been a blind bet. The problem was my ass was so tired that I passed out and I woke up like just after this fight. So it took me a while to even like get my wits about me. And so I missed my last minute betting. So I'll make my certain bets as I'm doing my analysis. And then um, I'll either wait to see line movement to determine if there's any other bets, uh, you know, line movement, or if I'm on the fence, uh, I will then reference, um, you know, uh, other people or or, or 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 perhaps other podcasts um, to get uh, to get references, folks. Kind of like I I've always kind of said on this show, and not in a while, but you know, even when I was back in my mixed martial analyst days, when I do the full card breakdowns, I say. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not trying to say I'm the guy, I'm the best, I'm this, I'm that, or anything like that. I'm, I readily admit that I'm not, but I you know would hope that you use me as a reference because you, it's what you should be doing. You should never be, you know, praising at the church of just one source, whether it's you know 
news or analysis or anything. You gotta you gotta go around and get get different feels to kind of help come up with your own. Um, you know, as far as if you're making plays, not if you're making content. You're making content, you gotta. You know, at least for me, I gotta I gotta keep in the house of uh, house of Dan Tom and keep keep the clowns uh, that are lunatics running the asylum in order. Dan, you're getting off track. Uh, what fight were we talking about? But yeah, I, I fell asleep. I think is what I was talking <laughs> talking about. Zaruch Adashiv. But yeah, I uh, oh yeah yeah I'll wait I'll wait um until the end there. I'll see what line movement is or get second opinions or third opinions if necessary. Before I make some plays, and yeah, I, I couldn't have done any of that. I was fucking out of it. Um, I was just dead. Because I think even after like the podcast, I went and I was already behind on an article that I should have turned in, and uh, was finishing punching it up. And uh, we'll see if that that drops and uh, whatnot. But um, and like I said, folks, don't worry. Dan Tom ain't going down. A... I'm staying in my lane. I love breaking down fights, man. I just you know. Sometimes I gotta do red opinion stuff, and uh, that's what I was referencing. Christian Aguilera defeated Anthony Ivy via first round TKO. Um, yeah, this was like again by the 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 initial read I got. This guy's gonna TKO him, but then I look closer and I'm like, wait, he's taking this in even shorter notice. This guy's a smaller welterweight. He's been TKO'd a bunch of times. Maybe the smaller cage will play toward Anthony Ivy's grappling. No, he just got iced, and then. <laughs> I hate it when, like, you know, it's very endearing because I, I love, and I don't mean to say simple as, like, some kind of low-key jab with my nose up in the air. No, I'm I'm a simple man myself, too. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the simpleness because what I'm trying to say when he said, you know, a guy like Christian Aguilera says, I want to go eat some Cane's chicken fingers uh, after <laughs> it's a big win. But... And part of me, the other part of me is like, I fucking hate when I hear stuff like that, man. Like, that's what you're going to reward yourself with? You know, uh, granted, this guy didn't do an eight-week camp, and as as most people aren't in this pandemic era, but, you know, you know, ostensibly speaking, like, you just went through this fucking camp, you just achieved this, like, massive feat of cage fighting at the fucking top level, you know, uh, you, you're a, you know, top percent athlete who doesn't get credited with it because you're going to be an, you're an MMA fighter, you know, ostensibly, uh, all these things. How are you going to reward yourself? Some fucking fast food that fucking schlubs like me reward myself with like once every week. <laughs> like I was actually craving canes and I'm like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm like, because now I don't want it. I'm like, what did you do to deserve the canes, Dan? <laughs> this guy, this guy this guy's fucking goes through a lifetime of fucking bullying with the name of Christina Aguilera. And then he comes and gets knocks out a dude on short notice in the UFC. You can't even win an MMA fight, motherfucker. You're going to get some canes? <laughs> Jesus, Dan. There's a peek into the fucking cruel voice in your head. But you, you hear what I'm saying, hopefully. <laughs> Aim higher, folks. I was like when I asked Darren Elkins, you know, after he knocked out Mirsad Bektik, like, you got to be on a high, man. How did you celebrate that weekend? Did you, did you, did you, uh, did you buy, buy you and your girl an extra special meal? Did you, did you buy a nice bottle of champagne? What'd you do? It's Miller Lite. All right. All right, Darren. <laughs> Anyways, there's the recap of that show. Um... Uh, yeah, 31 minutes. That's about as long as I wanted to go. All right, folks. Thanks a lot for everything. Thanks for um, supporting this podcast. Um, you know, uh, for those of you stuck around, especially those of you who've been around for a minute and haven't gotten sick of me. And um, if you ask me, there's always time to get, you know, 
be very easy to get sick of me, especially certain stints of this show. So, man, does it a, do, do, do I appreciate it. I'm gonna try to keep it as balanced uh, as, as a comment came in as far as, you know, analysis, entertainment, comedy. I really wanna try to keep that balance fun. Much better people for the news. Uh, I will try to keep still doing interviews like this um, when, uh, when it's apropos. Um, so thanks again, Nate Evans. Hopefully you guys dig this, rest of this interview. I'm gonna uh, have it ride us out for the show. So this will be the last from me. I'll see you guys uh, later on in the week here for um, whatever they're going to call this next Vegas show with uh, Blades and Volkov. And thanks, guys, again, sharing, shouting, tagging, just even just listening means the world. But yes, MixedMarshallAnalyst.com is the website that hosts this program where you can find Amazon and on it, click through banners as well as PayPal donation to help keep this thing free. And as Kurt... Bert Watson says, rolling. All right, folks, thank you guys always. Uh, don't want to say the protect your neck, but, you know, protect your neck until next time. I love you guys. Uh, enjoy the interview. Peace. Joining me now for this special edition of episode 200 of the Protect Your Neck podcast um, is an interview. We usually don't do too many interviews, but I interviewed a director of a documentary, B. Water, and keeping in spirit of martial arts documentaries, things you know your boy Dan Tom here loves. Um, this is a gentleman that I've actually been wanting to talk to uh, for a while now. It is Nate Evans from at MMA True Fan. Of course, they do a documentary podcast covering the likes of Mark Coleman, which I love that episode. Hopefully, I get to talk to Nate about that here in a second. Of course, his his latest, his greatest, uh, you know, one of my favorites of all time. He covered GSP, George St. Pierre, and uh, we're going to talk all about that. Thanks for joining me on the program today, Nate. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, hey man, you know, you know, a, a fellow podcaster, a fellow martial arts appreciator, and uh, I'm gonna guess, you know, if you do any sort of documentaries, whether it's video or audio, I, I'm gonna guess you're a history fan too, Nate. I am a history fan. Um, you know, like I'm a teacher by, by profession. I teach elementary school, but 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 if I but if I didn't teach elementary, I'd be teaching history. And I've always been a fan of biographies and shows like Behind the Music and A and E biography and stuff like that. I just I find these people interesting because they're, you know, the most important people, you know, of our of our time and most important people of our sport. So, you know, we're we're paying tribute and profiling their lives and trying to bring fans closer to them. That's what the, the show's about. Well, I, I wanted to half joke about my flex there as far as connecting the dots, but but boy, I was kind of spot on there because uh, not only did you just affirm what I just said, but for people, uh, by the way, again, go listen, go subscribe to their podcasts. Um, it makes sense that you're a teacher. When I listen to your program, the way you present the information, we're definitely going to talk about your editing and formatting choices, which are also very good from a production angle. But as far as the, but as far as the aspect of teaching, because I taught martial arts, I didn't quite get to go to teach uh, uh, kids. But for people that don't know, once I found out that film wasn't the best thing to major in, uh, I did switch over, uh, attempt to switch over to secondary education. So I've got an appreciation. Um, for that aspect as well, and and I don't think I'm a good writer, but for people that ask me or credit me with my writing, I say, you know, it's probably my teaching that kind of helps me 
uh, with my writing as far as explaining things. Do you find that your teaching experience helped you as far as explaining your thoughts and things you've been uh, doing with MMA True Fan? You know, it's really interesting because I think it does. Uh, you know, like I think just just try trying to have that, that clarity. Like you know, when I've written lesson plans and sometimes they've gone well, sometimes not so well, and then you go back and kind of rewrite them for next time, so it's a little clearer. Like I've taught the same lesson over over multiple years, but they're different each time because you try to improve them each time. And so it's kind of the same thing with this. Whereas you know, we we write a draft, we uh, put the the pieces of the interview in, and then we you know record it and then we kind of go back and look at it so oh, this part doesn't quite work you know so you kind of revise it and revisit it and change it up a little bit and you know it's kind of the same process really it's interesting i never really thought of that but you're right it totally is that same process it's so funny that you said that uh you started up uh looking at film because i got my my first degree in drama because i was also looking at film so i went to drama school and then but i was a musician at the time i i'm a, I'm a bassist and i was in a band so that kind of went out the window and the band didn't work out, and it's like, what am I going to do with my life? So I went back to school for teaching, and then I, you know, I was I was always a big fan of, of uh, the sport, though, because I, I went to some shows in 2001 when I was in college in New York at, at Purchase. Uh, we went to the shows in Atlantic City. We saw, like, Couture versus Randleman, uh, Tito versus Tanner, Couture versus Hizo. This is back wow. in like, 2001. yeah, yeah. And, and I've always been a big, hardcore fan of the sport since then. I mean, I watched, you know, I was a fan of, you know, Hoist Gracie and all that stuff. I didn't really get really into it until like 2001, and I've followed Pride, followed all those, you know, uh, all those big events back in the day. And like now, it's like looking back, some of these guys kind of started falling through the cracks a little bit, like Kevin Randleman, which is why we wanted to do one on him. And now he's getting the Hall of Fame, which is fantastic, obviously. So we're, we're very happy to see that. He's such a good guy, too. I, I met him in 2001 at one of those shows, and such a nice guy, just a really open, very warm guy, you know, shook your hand, looked you in the eye, made you feel special. And, you know, uh, to, to see he's getting that honor now is, is really, uh, it's, it's a really great thing. It's uh, really well-deserved too. Absolutely well-deserved. I don't have many Kevin Randleman stories, but I, I do have a couple memories of crossover at Extreme Couture, which remind me to share later because you sent me something on Kevin Randleman that'll definitely tie in later that will page note. But back to those crossover points. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was in a band and in theater as well. So I guess to tie that up is a saying that I've always said, and perhaps you will agree with this saying too, Nate, which is, um, sounds very Musashi-esque, but I thought of this and said this before I even knew, knew who that was. But it was, um, if you're an artist in one way, you're an artist in many. Um, and that's what I found with my experiences and experiences of others who I've crossed paths with. Yeah, that's exactly it, you know, because it's all, I mean, I think it's really just about creating, like, you know, trying to create something, something that just keeps you busy, keeps you functioning, you know, like I've, I've always been someone who I just have to stay busy doing something, stay busy working on something or else I get kind of stir crazy. It's like in The Shining, you know, <laughs> like I'll work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. It's kind of that. It really is kind of like that for an artist, I think. I mean, you have to stay busy. Like I've had like relationships kind of fall apart because I didn't have because I didn't have that outlet to, to really, you know, to, to create, to, to, to function in the way that, that I guess I need to function as an artist. And this is my outlet. This is it for me now. You know, like I, I'm, I'm really into this series and. You know, it's going, it's going well so far, and, you know, just excited about it, excited about what, what the future holds, hopefully. Well, I relate to a lot of what you said, but, yeah, tying it back into the podcast and your outlet, if you will, um, I completely agree, and it's very smart, and it, it, it seems like a very balanced approach now that you have, and, and we're all striving to find balance, but um, as far as making your outlet um, a niche, if you will, and it's something that, you know, people from uh, Ariel Helwani on down, a piece of advice that I agree with as well will say, which is, you know, 
don't try to be that broad, trying to cover everything and trying to make everybody happy. Um, you know, it's nothing wrong with just focusing on one particular thing and doing a damn good job at it. And you guys uh, really, really do a, a good job as far as, you know, the, these audio documentaries and giving credit uh, to, uh, again, we do, I try not to do too much, but one of the things we do do on this show is top five shows and it, it's, it's completely different. It's not a documentary, but but the point is the same. Where there's just so much going forward in the world and MMA, we it's good to take a breath and, and appreciate our history and kind of uh, take a, a look back at the roots, if you will. Yeah, you know, I mean, I love your show too, by the way. And um, thank you. you know, I, I I think and a, and, a, and a thank you for your for your kind words on our on our work. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a sport that's just going so fast, like it's moving and fast forward. You know, I mean. I mean, who, who would have thought today, you know, we're looking at McGregor being, like, irrelevant when just a year or two ago he's the biggest in the world. And, you know, I mean, nowadays it's he's not right now, it seems, you know. And, you know, looking at the sport, how fast it goes and where we were at 15 years ago. I mean, 15 years ago, Pride was still the biggest on the on, on the planet. Two or three years yeah. later, it's gone, you know. And now it's like people don't even know it existed. Like I was talking to some people online about, you know, what are some good pride fights to see? And I saw some people saying, you know, like, what's pride? And it's like, man, I can't believe people don't know about this stuff. Because, I mean, I love the UFC and I love Strike Force and WEC, all those events. I still think pride was my favorite of, of, of like, all the things that I saw. Just just of the the, the rule set and the, and the ring. Like, I, I really like the ring and the, uh, the idea of the infinite space that they had where they would go to the corner and then they just restarted back in the middle. So you couldn't just cage somebody up and grind them out in the corner like it's just a different type of fighting not that it's so much better than the ufc i love the ufc but i, I love having the two uh styles of fighting like the like the national league american league of, of baseball like how, how they're just different like like a yin and a yang like i i liked how the pride and ufc were different and that pride piece of it's just gone like there is no more real ring fighting that that works in that way it seems yeah, you, you, know, you know, it's crazy. Um, that, yeah, there are certain things that we can argue from past to present um, as far as star powers and whatnot, but there are just some undeniable truths, and you touch on some really great ones there where I, for example, I just posted a picture on Twitter today for the Flashback Friday, and it was um, uh, doing some single leg drills with Frank Trigg, who makes a, a, a nice appearance on the GSP doc, by the way, a little connecting plug there. But in the background, it's Extreme Couture, and it's when we still had the ring there uh, because the ring eventually got phased out because after Pride, there was Dream and, and Japanese organizations. But, you know, even North American stuff like IFL had died out at that point, um, which we, we had a lot of crossover people, you know, from the IFL, by the way, you know, being a, uh, you know, over here in, in, in Las Vegas, the fight capital, and a, with a gym that was still around, um, kind of, you know, that was kind of erecting while the these organizations were on their downward um and you just saw that you know it, it eventually became you know even 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 though the gym doubled in expansion there just wasn't room for a ring we have two you know different size cages for the small cage which comes in handy to the big cage but over the time period it became less and less relevant and it just was crazy because i remember going you know, back to the gym in those days, and there was just the ring and just the cage, and there was guys training for their fights in Japan on this side, and then there was the UFC guys on that side, and it was crazy. It was just crazy, and the, you know, uh, Vanderlei Silva when he first came started came over to America, he had that brief stint at Extreme Couture, so kind of seeing him, you know, uh, 
have, having to go away from the ring and, and do his training sessions in the cage to try to get him acclimated before that Chuck fight was just kind of a yeah. crazy sight to see as far as it, 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 what it poetically said. Of course, you didn't understand it then. You didn't see where things were going, but you look back now and you're like, oh, crap, we're not going to, we don't see that now. No, you know, and, uh, you know, there are some organizations that still have their ring. I think like Risen has it and, uh, yes, yes. Uh, but, you know, I mean, but that's just not on the same scale as Pride. I mean, you know, Pride, Pride during its day was, was the biggest. I mean, like 2003 and four, I mean, those really during its heyday, it was, I mean, it, it, it was bigger globally than, than the UFC was. And, um, you know, not that it, you know, not that it needs to be now. Obviously, it's not even around anymore. But it was just good having the, those shows around. But um, you know, seeing seeing Vandalay in uh, the cage, I mean, it was interesting because like that rule set didn't really work for him, and it showed how uh, you know how how important the rules are to to a fighter's success and the fighter's style. Like Pride just was perfect for him because he could do the knees, the head on the ground, the soccer kicks on the ground. Can't do any of that in the, in the UFC, obviously. And you know, whereas you have a Tito Ortiz who, who you know, used the elbows to the face on the ground and and you know, dug people out in the corner of the cage. That wouldn't really work in the Pride ring either. And so, like, I wish we still had both, so you could see. That's one. That's like one of the gripes I have with the UFC, and I love the UFC and Dana is you. You buy Pride just to kill it. It's like a catch and kill situation. Whereas, like you could have, you know, you could have kept it going over there. And like I've heard that, you know, the reason why Pride collapsed is because they they didn't have another Sakuraba. They couldn't find a Sakuraba to really promote it in Japan. But like, wouldn't you love to see, like someone like Khabib fight in in the in the Pride ring to see like see him work in the Pride ring? Like 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 how would his style translate? I mean. Would he because you know Khabib's style is you you put him in the corner of the cage and you beat him up you know his his great position is when the guy is like halfway down and he's like on his back you know getting him like that but would that really work in the ring you know what I mean like would that translate and I would just like to see how that would work you know but I mean yeah. we'll never know we, now we, but we would probably he, see more Khabib on his back I, you know I always say Khabib's really good on his back people don't get to see it yeah but those fights in the ring it, it also even without the influence of the ropes aside. Even in the open, it had it, it created. You know, I think I spoke with this uh, with uh, Zane Simon from Bloody Elbow, where it, it create created weird scrambles, which were f- really fun and yeah. opportunistic that you didn't necessarily get as well. And yeah, you you wonder what of the UFC wrestlers or the more modern wrestlers of then or today do they start to take that footwork? Um, you know, from the strikers like Crow Cop in reverse and using it for pressure as far as learning how to use the, you know, uh, learning how to corner somebody. But do you do that for wrestling, knowing that, yeah, it's going to be a pain to tie up, but this is where we're going to get it and they're not going to use the cage. Uh, they're not going to be able to use it like they use the cage to stand. Um, now, time. You know what? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Can I just add, yeah, add, yeah. add uh, one quick thing? I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off. Something that, that kind of relates to this is, we uh, did we did a documentary on Dan Henderson that'll come out late, later this year. And when mm. I talked to Dan, he he fought in you know Pride in the UFC and, and really kind of had like equal time in, in both organizations. Yeah. Whereas like you know Vanley's career was mostly in Vanley Nogueira mostly in Pride. Um, but but I asked him you know what's the difference between fighting in the Pride ring and fighting in the UFC cage? What, what do you like more? And he said that he thought you had to be more technical in the pride ring than, than in the UFC cage because in the UFC cage you could you could put him in the corner and grind him out, whereas in the pride ring you had to just just be more technical to, to get him where, where you wanted to take him because um, there were no stops like you know like you you would end up back in the middle in the same position so so like so you, you had no 
leveraged it to work off a wall or anything like that. So it was kind of interesting what what, what, what his take was on it. That is very true, and I'm, I'm just picturing like the judo and sambo guys to Fedor on down, um, and how that that skill was probably much more translatable when having to defend up against a rope, knowing your base and balance. Because again, you can't just get away with lazily pushing uh, guys uh, like you would against the cage. You do it to a good sambo or judo right. guy. They're using that momentum. And, you know, they're flinging you off them uh, and, and striking off the break, the Fedor, the, the Fedor Classic, right? Um, and, and, yeah. and again, yeah. another reason why maybe it wasn't so much that they were Japanese, but maybe because those guys were judo stylists that that same thing didn't, you know, that's why we, we can only count the judo guys on, you know, not even using our whole hand on the UFC. You know, it's, right. you know and, sure. and even that we go back and pick apart their games from Rousey to Caro, you know, and I, I like Caro, right. uh, but I'm just saying it's Love just, Caro. you know, it's one of those things. And uh, speaking of Caro, who was George St. Pierre's first opponent in the UFC, great underrated fight. Yeah. Um, some sure. cra- crafty stuff from Turtle, one of my favorite positions, where Caro came closest to uh, catching GSP there. And as well as tying this in a pride, because I became aware of mixed martial arts the same time as you, but I'd be lying if I said I was a big fan in the late 90s or 2001 era. Uh, it wasn't until, you know, um, a, a, a bass player in my band, who was the biggest Crow Cop fan, of course, introduced me to Pride, and Pride is what really kind of just really got me in, and by 2005, 2006, I can now call myself a hardcore, right? Uh, coming in coming in with a tough noob wave, if you will. Um, but, yeah. But, but, you know, uh, <laughs> funny. And, and before, I, I, I actually, I think even before, right around the same time, if not before, when I, I figured out who a guy named, you know, BJ Penn was, who was doing a lot better those times, folks. And uh, we don't have a lot as 5'9 Hawaiians to look up to, you know? So, of course, I like BJ. But I also, even back then, not just now, was a big George St. Pierre fan, folks, because he was a guy that came out with the gi. He, he, he is, was handsome and could do the splits and had the whole Van Damme thing going on, you know? I'm like, then he was starting to learn how to grapple and wrestle. I'm like, what, what can't this guy do? Um, so I was also a very big George St. Pierre fan and a big hooking point, which is why, you know, you love this old era when guys could wear their geese, whether it was, if not into the ring, like pride, but at least to the cage, like older UFC, um, was the fact that this guy came from a Kyushkushin karate base. I apologize if I've mispronounced the name. I'm a Kempo karate guy. Nonetheless, I appreciated the karate base. And as I've segued the bridge here into your George St. Pierre doc, let me just say that I had no idea how deep those roots went. I thought it might have been just some kid black belt. I didn't realize the connection, the death. I don't want to give too many spoiler alerts. And then the uh, second abridging connection to uh, Matsui, a very uh, notable uh, uh, person in that field. I-, I had no idea about any of this stuff, and I love karate and traditional martial arts. That d- Did you know about that before you dove into this, Nate? What was your take on all that? I mean, I knew a little bit about it. You know, I knew that he was a black belt. I didn't, I didn't know. You know, like, like you said. I mean, like one thing about doing this is like it's really like a journey. Like, you know, because a lot of these things I just don't know. And like, you know, you can you can read as many websites as you, as you can find, but you know, until you actually get the guy on the phone talking about the stuff, and he's talking about you know, like like how much it helped him as a kid. You know, with the bullying and stuff like that. But then you know, uh, meeting meeting uh, meeting Kancho Matsui, how uh, you know, privileged he was and how proud he was to, to get that third degree. And, um, you know, something that, uh, when I, when I was talking to him, I was like, you know, like how big of a deal was it for you to get your third degree black belt, you know, after as far as you'd come. And he's like, black belt doesn't mean anything. I don't care about the belt. I care about, you know, Matsui came to see me like that was, you know, that's what meant a lot to him. And, 
we talked the same thing about with with the the, the, the uh, UFC belt. You know, like, I don't care about the belt. Like I care about you know the fact they got it from Matt Hughes. Like you know that's what that's what his honor was. And you know he's he's just such an interesting guy because there's so many things. You know, for someone who's as successful as he is, that that belt doesn't mean anything to him. You know, like he said how he how he gave them all away. He doesn't even have his belts. You know, he gave them away to people. And you know, I, I didn't know any of that. I mean, you know, I. I don't I, I don't know if anyone knows that you know yet but you know he's just such a nice guy and then also when you talk to him you can tell like he's very much in command very much in control like he's very polite but yet he's not gonna let anyone anyone push him around you know like how they had like how uh, i think carl massaro talked about uh how like in training um how like George had this regiment. He, he 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 did this much work, and once he hit that red line, he was done. And whenever and some people would be like, "Hey, let's go another round. Let's go drill this move." And he was like, "Nope, that's it. I'm done." You know, and, and you couldn't budge him off that horse. You know, and like when I talked to him, you know, he was very polite, gave me gave me all the great information. But he had a certain amount of time, you know, and and he said, you know, okay, okay, I gotta go. Do you have to, you know time for one more question? And you know, and he was very nice about it. But I mean, that was it. Like you know, and uh, he. It's just one of those things where you don't get that level of success by being wishy-washy or, you know, letting people, you know, push you around at all. But he's just very polite and very strong-willed, which, you know, isn't surprising seeing seeing his interviews, seeing, seeing how cool he is, but also seeing that success he's had. I wish I could relate to him in the sense of uh, knowing when to call it quits for trading. That was super interesting. It made a lot of sense. It, more people should do that. Um, because it, it's the key to a lot of injuries when you're, you know, exhausted, and, and um, that's another reason why you know people structure their sparring certain ways, um, and that was really smart. However, what I did relate and didn't expect to relate on him was, well, maybe perhaps the bullying that's a more commonly known part about. That's why he got into karate, and sure, um, I relate on that sense. But but further uh, past that, like you said, as far as. Um, achieving the third degree black belt, but not uh, mattering who it was or giving the belts away. Um, you know, I remember I used to draw a lot, and uh, a lot of my best drawings as a kid, um, I would give almost give them away. I would, you know, and people would get mad like, why, why didn't you save that? Or this wasn't social media days, folks. You know, this was the early '90s. There's no phone cameras to take a picture and then give it away. Like, I just gave it away. Um, and there's something very relatable to that as far as not wanting belts either. You know. Um, I always regretted not staying to achieve my second and th- and then third degree, which is where I actually wanted to get to in Kempo Karate or even in Taekwondo. I kind of just stopped at the black belts and moved on. Um, and I became very disenfranchised with from traditional martial arts as we make that you know uh, leap from the 90s into MMA in the mainstream. And MMA is now solving a lot of the things, the questions we had, right? So now you become kind of disenfranchised with that the whole system and... You know, even my own martial arts company uh, kind of turned into a business, so that kind of disenfranchised me as somebody who really loved the martial art. Um, but tying that into the George St. Pierre thing, I remember I was just such a pain in the ass. I remember my coach, Neil Melanson, my catch wrestling coach, who gave us stripes, not belts, but stripes so we could fit in with the grappling community. Um, you know, he came, kept them the same as jiu-jitsu, blue, uh, purple, etc. And there definitely was no argument. Um, if you were a blue belt under him in comparison to any other gi jiu-jitsu blue belt, let's just put it that way. And uh, I remember when he awarded me my purple stripe, which was my purple belt, he's like, I've never seen someone so unhappy uh, to get the belt uh, because I was, I was always so reluctant to letting someone rank me. Um, and 
and the same thing, you know, uh, the late great Robert Fallis, uh, who I'm sure you've come across in your studies as well. Sure. Um, he came yeah. across the same struggles with me as well when he came in Extreme Couture and, in, and introduced the GI program, um, reinstituted that there. And um, I said, okay, very reluctantly, and uh, to, to let him rank me because I obviously I have, have a lot of respect for Robert. Um, he unfortunately passed for people that aren't, aren't aware. Uh, so I've been very reluctant to let people rank me since. And, you know, I'll, I'll, when I will show up to class, I'll just throw kind of a white belt on. And and now I'm realizing, like, it kind of is snake oily because, you know, people will call me, like, Dan, you're not a white belt. Get the hell, get that, get that off there. But it's not to deceive anybody. I just, I could give a crap about rank. It's not a, it's not about that. So to hear long-winded, overly personal, sorry, but to hear a guy like George St. Pierre kind of carry that same attitude when he, of all people, from his obvious obviously the UFC titles, but yes, he's one of the few that can be really proud of even those traditional belts and titles, and he was just, to hear his humble attitude, that was really, really awesome. Yeah, and, um, you know, that's really cool to, to, to hear you say that as well, and, and uh, um, you know, when I was talking to, when I did our documentary on Randy Couture, um, I talked to uh, Chael about, about Couture and about when Team Quest started to come together, and he said that Team Quest really started to form as far as the team goes, when Fallis got involved and Fallis became like the coach, because then you had the structure of like the teacher, team, students, you know, where you had the teacher, team, and the students underneath them. And uh, Fallis was really a straw that stirred that drink as far as them coming together as a team and when they're, when they're back in Oregon. Yeah. Um, something that, uh, that that's interesting about George uh, when it comes to. Uh, just martial arts in general that made him different uh, that, that Danner, John Danaher said was how, you know, prior to George, a lot of people were experts in one field and then integrated other martial arts to work with their game. Like Hal Hoist was a, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist. No, Garib, Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist. Fas Rutten, Kyokushin karate artist. And George was a Kyokushin karate artist, but he but he wasn't really a a a, a top competitor in, in, in Kyokushin Karate because he started doing mixed martial arts so young, whereas, like, you know, uh, Boss was a, you know, kickboxing. He, he, he had a kickboxing career. Hoist had a jiu-jitsu career. All these people had other careers, like Couture and wrestling, Coleman and wrestling. If you look at all those top guys, they all had prior careers in their martial art before doing mixed martial arts, whereas George came into the sport as a mixed martial artist. He, he had the background in, in, in karate, integrated it in jiu-jitsu. He started doing jiu-jitsu when he was 16, which I didn't know. And um, but then, but, but he like really developed as a mixed martial artist from the beginning. Like that was kind of his goal from, from being a teenager. And that kind of, that was different than what other people were doing at the time. And now it's more common. A lot of people are training everything early on. But, you know, George kind of started that. He was really one of the first people to do that. Even, even Anderson Silva, as great as, as great as he was on the ground, he was obviously a pure striker before he got with Noguera. And you know, turn him into more of a more of a ground fighter. But George really kind of started that trend. Yeah, that was. That, I mean, you know, you you heard about that before, but seeing that insight on it, especially with now we have the information and sample sizes of today to realize how ahead of his time and how important that was to do. And you're right, I didn't realize because you're going through the documentary and you guys do a good job of keeping it. You know, um, in, in a, you know. Whether it's strictly chronological or not, it's a very easy to follow format. And very early on, you're hearing about his treks even to New York 
to train jujitsu, and I'm like, I'm having to double check the notes. Like, wait, it was this early? Wow, I didn't realize this. You're, you're, I was very surprised yeah. by that too. And you know, to hear that they had that, which made sense of why they had, they were confident they had the ace up their sleeve. Of course, the more common casual knowledge is George learned to wrestle against Koscheck, and that's where we saw his grappling. Whereas more people that are old school. Like me, you go, well, we actually saw it come alive against Frank Trigg. You forget how good Frank Trigg was at the time, and that might not stick out on paper now, but that was a big win. But then now I'm even like, okay, I'm a, I'm a dummy. Like he was preparing his grappling game to spring on people far before then. Yeah, I mean, that was news to me too. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I didn't know that he had been grappling as a teenager. I mean, he, he was taking a bus from Montreal to New York as a teenager to go, to go do jiu-jitsu, and, you know, Obviously, just you know, get his get his butt kicked all weekend, go back and come back a couple months later. I mean, you know that kind of that kind of dedication is you just don't find that very often. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, and and the way he kind of formatted it as far as you know, um, you know, uh, the hierarchy and 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 when he was second guessing himself at times because you know he kind of laid it out like, well, I, I you know I got to be get better than this guy and and this guy, all these guys are better than me. Wow, this is a big world, and I think anybody who's done martial arts. Um, you don't have to, you know, be a pro fighter or accomplish the, the great feats that George St. Pierre has to be able to identify with feeling like, wow, this is a bit overwhelming. And, you know, that was always uh, the very nice human side of St. Pierre. He was never afraid to admit these things. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised. But, yeah, to hear him hear him dive that early and, and almost, you know, maybe even think about quitting at times so early is a crazy thought. Yeah, and you know it's interesting how like, how like, he realized that so young when he was 16 years old he realized like you know this is the bar that I need to get to this is the measure you know whereas you know, a lot of people don't don't realize that until they're older and then you know they're they're like you know and, and like they're in their mid 20s and like oh psh, I'm never gonna get there like you know and and then they you know give up and do something else you know which is fine too but you know but but George knew what that measure was when he was so young and so. You know, but by the time he was in his mid twenties, he had already been chasing that that mark for you know eight ten years. So, I mean, it's it's really interesting to to see his journey, and because a lot of people just see him out there beat, beating everybody up, and you just you don't you don't see what it took to to get there. You know what I mean? All of the years it took of him of him training and struggling, and you know, I mean, like how he was working three jobs when he was when he's uh when he's yeah. first starting out, he's working working as a garbage man and. A bouncer and I think he was doing flooring or something like that um so I mean you know like th there's a, there's a big struggle along the way it's a big lesson too for a lot of uh not even just young fighters but just aspiring people young aspiring for anything when you listen um to the documentary and when he goes over those times because not just the working three jobs but investing in yourself yeah you could be like well he's a super athlete he's, he's a rich playboy of course you can go to brazil to work his jiu-jitsu and all those videos when he was in the off season like we're not even talking about that folks like he was specializing and putting those time and investing in himself when he didn't have the money when he didn't have the fame when he didn't have the credibility um and from the you know and that's something that again you don't have to be a pro fighter but just think about that is there somebody who specializes in something that you want to get good at or even just some aspect go talk to them okay are they not that accessible do you need to spend money to have a private lesson uh, as opposed to going into their general class hoping you can stick out and putting more miles on your body and sparring or whatever and still not getting no you're gonna have to go that extra mile you're gonna have to do the privates too you're gonna have to pay for those privates you're gonna have to get the extra job to invest, and that is something that I think, on a base level, uh, that 
you know, we can all kind of relate to. And I keep harping on that because George St. Pierre, let's face it, he's so great. Um, it's kind of hard to relate, but there are so many relatable things within the layers of who GSP was. And I guess these early years, which is a, a, the majority of my notes here, were the most thrilling and enthralling and informative uh, parts of the documentary for me, Nate. Thank you. Th th thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it really was most interesting for me, too. And that's really a, an area for me, like it's it's most interesting to go into the unknown areas that, you know, because I, I don't really know anything about that. You know, or I, or I, or I did not know anything about that. I can go and watch the fights and watch the notes and watch about him. You know, blowing out Kostrick's orbital and you know, and you know, you know the Hughes head kick and all the things that are you know, right there defined. But you know, in order to get really what you want to get, you have to you know go into things you just don't know anything about, and that comes through the interviews. I mean, you have to have that interview to to make it work. And we do we do we do all the interviews for for all of our episodes, obviously, but. You know, going into the unknown is is really the, the, the funnest part. You know, because I didn't know that that part about him doing doing that traveling, about him, you know, almost quitting when when he first went to Henso's. When he when he got done with Sean Williams, who's a fourth yeah. degree Henso black belt, it was super nice guy. Um, how how he said like, hey, you know, because he said I was Sean, I kicked my ass, I kicked my ass easy. He said, you know, yeah. <laughs> but he said like, hey, you know, like <laughs> he said, hey, you know, like would you roll with Henzo? Does he get the best of you? And he's like, yeah, he usually taps me. And he's like, and George is like, holy shit, man. Like, you know, yeah, so just yep, that, that was that great. Pure, I love that. that. That pure reaction, you know, that that's, that's really what it's, what it's about. That's really, you know, that's, that's really what I'm striving for as an artist is, is to, is to find that, that little piece, that little bit right there. That's my favorite part of the whole documentary. Cause, cause, cause you can hear the, uh, the, the the raw emotion in his voice you know you can hear him thinking back something that he hadn't probably thought about in years you know and uh hearing him talk about that like you know like I, you know like like how like he, he almost quit but then that was the moment that really made him that was that was the moment when he, when he said i'm gonna do this i'm gonna make all the sacrifices i'm gonna get on that bus and go up go, go up and down you know 87 to, to to go back to new york and make this happen and you know that, that 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 was really the one of the defining moments in his life was was that moment when he decided that I'm going to stick this out I'm going to make it happen and you know that's that's that turning point for him. I love that Sean Williams interview. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that was really awesome. That added a lot of perspective. And yeah, those moments that you talk about. Uh, I'm not a great interviewer. I haven't done a lot of interviewing, but of all my interviews, I probably have only I feel like I've only achieved that once. But you never forget it if you do. And it was in similar contexts. Um, interviewing Matt Brown, and I just, apropos nothing, asked him about his fight over Douglas Lima, because I recently did a breakdown on Douglas Lima, and of course Matt Brown, one of the only people to stop by TKO, at least, Douglas Lima, and you go back and watch that fight that's still on YouTube, folks, and you can even like listen closely when you turn the audio up, and you hear him and George Gurgel share this moment, and, uh, and it's a great moment, I don't want to spoil it, but then asking Matt Brown, it brought it up to life, and like you said uh, earlier in our interview, Nate, where you don't know these things until you talk to the people, no matter how revealing or how much you think you know. And yeah, I just realized that was his moment, Matt Brown's moment, as what you just said as far as George St. Pierre's, where, yeah, I can do this. I can be a pro fighter. I can be one of the I'm not just a punch and dummy. I, I'm one of the guys. And uh, yeah, that was a great moment on your, on your, on your show with uh, uh, in regards to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean and uh, like I love Matt Brown, I love I love uh, Douglas Lima too. I've never spoken with either of them, but hopefully someday we'll get, I'll get to talk to them as well. But uh, you know, George is George, just a super nice guy, and um, 
you know, he has he's very um, outgoing and he'll 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 answer all the questions. A lot of people, you know, you, you ask a question and they, you know, kind of skirt around it. Whereas George doesn't. George, you know, he has nothing to hide. He's, you know, he talked about Khabib, talked about why he wanted to fight Khabib, talked about, you know, all, all the big fights, you know, talked about the Hughes fights. And, um, you know, just a very, just just a real pleasure to talk to him. I actually talked to him first when I was doing the one on Henzo. We're doing one on, 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 on Henzo that I'll nice. find later in the year. He's an awesome guy, too. And uh, speaking of Sean Williams, something that Sean Williams uh, said that, and I don't want to get too off, too off track, but um, you said how, talk about like, like making the sacrifices and putting in that time into the privates and doing that. Something that kind of relates to that was when I talked to Sean Williams, I talked to Sean about George and Henzo, obviously. Um, he said how when he first started training at Henzo's, he moved from upstate New York to the city because he wanted to do jujitsu, and then he dedicated his entire life to jujitsu from that point on. And he was going to college, uh, going to art school at Cortland, which is about three hours. Like, I'm, I'm from that area near Cortland. And, um, uh, and he moved to the city, but he started taking out student loans and spending them on classes at, at, at Henzo's Academy. So he took his student loans, <laughs> didn't spend them on college, spent them at Henzo's Academy wow. and privates and stuff like that to become great. And it's like, it's just like, holy cow, like, you know, the guts to do that. But then also at the same time, like, 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 like if that was my kid, like, what, what are you doing? Like, you know, he's spending, you know, but uh, going back to George, wow. um, it, it, isn't, it, it, isn't that crazy? That you know, is, like, yeah. Spending student loans on jujitsu classes, yeah. you know? But, uh, but like with, with George talking, talking about all these things, he, you know, has like, I, I, I did lose my train of thought now, but, um, but he was talking about how, um, you know, the, the Hughes fights and those fight and the Koscik fight. But, uh, when you, when you hear people talk about him, they often say some of the same things, very hardworking guy, but also how when he's training, he's always trying to learn from everybody and trying to and working with like average people and george said how in the end like people are surprised that i'm training with regular people like you know he still goes and trains with like a white belt and a blue belt because i like that part yeah and, and, that was and this was that was very surprising to me because it's like what i mean george goes and trains with like you know average joes like it's crazy but but for him I thought that was like a charity move, like he's being like a nice guy trying to inspire people or something like that, and it's that too, I guess. But it's really more uh, tactful, whereas or more uh, uh, there's a there's there's a reason behind it because with uh, people who are better than you, you work on your. He says people who are better than you, you work on your defense. People you're better than, you work on your offense. People on the same level as you, you work on your all-around game. So you can learn from everybody, and that's part of your job as a martial artist to yeah. do your homework and to, and to and to adapt. Being able to adapt to your opponent is is the biggest one of the biggest uh, skills you can have as a fighter. And that was something that I had no idea going into it. I didn't know any of that at all. And just to hear him talk about it, you know, because because I tried to save the the fighter the the fighter interview himself for for last, so I can talk to training partners and coaches so I can, you know, yeah, have as many interesting questions going into it, you know, as opposed to talking to him first and then, because people like, people like St. Pierre, you really only get one, one, one or two shots at, but, um, uh, but like he said, but these people say how, you know, that, uh, his, one of his training partners said how, you know, he still trains with like regular people. Yeah. I've like, heard that. Yeah. Why? 
why? Like, why would he train with regular people? But uh, where I was going before was with uh, Henzo. We're doing the documentary on Henzo, and I talked to one of his Jordan's training partners, who's a student of Henzo's, Carl Massaro, fantastic guy, super knowledgeable guy. And um, I asked him, I said, hey, you know, do you think George would be available to talk about Henzo? And Carl's like, well, I mean, I'll ask him, you know, I don't know. I mean, and I'm like, you know, like, and I'm like, fingers crossed here, you know, if I can talk to you. This is before I did the documentary on George. I'm, I'm just, you know, talking about Henzo. And uh, and I put my kid to bed that night and just going down the stairs and the phone rang and it's a Montreal number. I'm like, oh, my God, that might be George. And you know, so I, I answered the phone and he's like, hey, you know, I was calling to talk about Henzo for a few minutes. I'm like, yeah, like, you know, I, I was I was starstruck and like, wow. I don't get starstruck very often. You know, the fact that George called me to talk to me about Henzo. And then that was how I got him. I said, hey, you know, would you be able to talk about yourself? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we'll talk sometime, you know, whenever we can find time together, you know. And But, uh, you know, I uh, spoke with him twice. I spoke with him for Henzo, and I talked to him, you know, a month or two later for himself. But that was, you know, but but he's not afraid to have those interviews. He's not afraid to be open like that, you know. And I'm sure he's not calling people up for interviews very often, you know. Yeah, making totally. The initiative, you know. Usually the people are probably tracking him down. But, um, you know, I was I was very honored to, to speak with him in, in that moment. And uh, I was surprised that he called me up like that. You know, it was it was super cool of him. And, uh, you know, it, it worked out, you know, for his. You know, I, you know, we're very proud of the documentary that, that, that we did on. It was one of our better ones, we think. That's impressive that you guys got him, too, for sure. Um, with, for fear of spoiling everything in your documentary, let me just table it with this. Um, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to spring. I don't want to spring this on you unfairly. So. Load some answers. Sure. You may have already answered it for the George St. Pierre doc. What was the one thing that surprised you most that came away with it, whether it was something that made it in the doc or didn't from the George St. Pierre doc, as well as the Mark Coleman doc? So you can think of those in the back of your head. Um, and I want to touch on something you kind of were just kind of, in, you know, we're, we're touching on. You are kind of doing the segue for me. Um, the format must be interesting, I imagine, whether it's the format within the episode or in the grand scheme of things, for example, you spoke with George for a documentary that hasn't come out yet, and then you ended up doing a, you know, speaking with him later, and then here this documentary is coming out before the one that you initially spoke to him for, if that made sense. Yeah. I know I worded it much more confusing than it is, but obviously you get what no, I'm saying. Um, so in the process, obviously you're very organized. Uh, I can tell you need to be. It's good. It's appreciated, all that. That being Thanks. said, I'm guessing a lot of these things have have a have a have a life of their own. These things kind of write themselves from the grand scheme of things to within the episode. Is there some truth there? And and how much of these things do you kind of let write itself as far as letting the story play out? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it does write itself. You know, I mean, it, it, it's it's kind of like this like bowl that you're writing, trying trying to just you know keep keep track of it all. And um, with the, the reason why the one with Henzo came out first is, I mean, the, the one with George came out before Henzo um, is because we are releasing them every other month so, so we can stay ahead of them. And then we weren't really sure what order we're going to release them in. But then, but then once George was announced going into the Hall of Fame, we thought we should probably get that out before he goes to the Hall of Fame so we can, like, you know, just, like, put put a button on it. It's a good time. You know, George is, you know, back in the news, you know, so, you know, we'll do that then. But, 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 but to answer your question about them writing themselves, a lot of it just comes down to being able to do the interview. And I don't really know where it's going to go until the interviews are over. And I think that's kind of important, being able to let the interviews drive the work as opposed to because when we're doing the, the, the first episodes, we're kind of like writing out a full script 
and then we're doing interviews and just kind of kind of uh, peppering it with clips. But then at the same time, it felt like the more because I think the real draw to this uh, format is hearing the interviews. People want to hear George talk. They don't want to hear me talk. I mean, not that you know, not that we're awful to listen to, but they want to hear the fighter talk. They right. want to hear these people talk. That's that's the reason why they're. That's the reason why. That's the the draw to this, you know, art in, in my opinion. So so we're trying to get more clips in there, trying to get trying to get it more involved with the people speaking. And then once you have that done, then you're basically just storyboarding, where it's like you know you're you know you have you have this information because like like with George, you know we we talked about you know skill by skill with people talking about similar things because Kenny Florian talks about something that Phil Nurse talks about and Greg Jackson talks about the same thing, but then Bob Cook and Pat Militich talk about different things. So, so you're basically you know bullet pointing uh, you know skill quote quote skill quote quote and then you're basically going from there and then. Because we thought about at first, maybe we should um, have the sep- maybe we should have the the uh, interview separate. Like you know, where we talked about where we talked to Bob Cook for a little bit, and then we talked to Pat Militich for a little bit, and then we talked to Greg Jackson for a little bit, and just uh, stack it like that. But then, but then we're getting we're uh, getting kind of repetitive. You know what I mean? We're right. talking about the same things, the same. And then it's kind of like, oh, we you know, I've already heard him talk about that, but all of them are a little bit different. So, so if you can put that Bob Cook quote right next to the Pat Militich quote, yeah, they're they're on the same topic, on the same skill, same uh, ability, but they have a different perspective on it from yeah. two great minds. So, I love that. So, 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 like I think if you can kind of juxtapose it a little bit in that way, and um, you know, or just just show show the the subtle nuances uh, between the two, like we we thought that would be more interesting. So that's kind of why we had you know where we have. Where Bob and Bob Cook's a super good guy, super knowledgeable yeah. guy, you crazy know, Bob Cook, you know, awesome guy, so awesome. Because um, you have him talking, then you have Militish talking, then it kind of goes from there, you know, like sure. how we had, you know, Phil Nurse talking about this skill of, you know, of George being a good student. Phil gives this example, then John Danaher gives this example, you know. Whereas I think if you had the full interviews stacked up against each other, people are like, oh, we know he's a good student. You know, we already heard he's a good student, you know. But when you hear it back to back, boom, boom, like that, it's like, oh, he's a good student in this way. But this is different, you know. So it kind of gives it a more rounded view. Is, yep. is, is, that's, that's our, our goal in that, to doing that. And, that's, and that way it kind of writes itself because, like, the, the, the interviews write it, you know. Then from there, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, legwork as far as doing the biographical piece the year he's born where he's born what his parents did right. where he went to school you know that's all stuff you get on wikipedia sure, you know what i mean sure. like, so so but we wanted to go beyond we wanted to go beyond just you know the the textbook you know information which is all accessible and that's all good to know too and me being a history geek i love that stuff yeah, too yeah but to get but to get a little deeper into it you got to get those interviews and those interviews really drive it totally man and uh, i don't I don't want to have you divulge all your secrets of how the sausage is made, but let me just finish th- that point by saying I really just love how you guys style and format it. It's very, very well done. Uh, I know it's probably not the easiest thing to do at times, but the, the payoff's got to be worth it. So for the GSP doc first, then Coleman, what was the one biggest takeaway, whether it's a factoid that made it or didn't make it or just an experience, biggest takeaway from the GSP doc? Just the fact that he just outworked everybody and you know he 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 did the work he 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 did everything he had to do he he checked all the boxes and 
you know, and, and there are some things that didn't, they didn't make it in there that we want to include as well. Like, um, you know, like we were talking to, to, I was talking to John Danaher, John Danaher said how, you know, St. Pierre, and this, this might be the most surprising thing. I don't know if it's the most interesting, the most surprising thing to me was how Danaher said that people think St. Pierre was like the greatest athlete, you know, in the sports history or whatever, but he wasn't, you know, and Danaher said how like Kevin Randleman is probably a better athlete than St. Pierre was. Like how, how how Kevin Randleman had like had, how he had the measurables, he had the the vertical and the the speed and the all the raw athleticism, you know. True. Yeah. So I so so I thought that was interesting how how these people who were so attached to George are also very blunt and honest about other things. Like, yeah, he's great at this, but he's not the best at it, you know. Like this person's better at him, better at this, you know. And but something about George is um, how they said that. You know how he integrated everything. How he was just this pure, one hundred percent mixed martial artist, and that you know he wasn't fantastic at any one particular thing. Great wrestler, great puncher, great kickboxer, great uh, submission guy. But he, but the way he integrated all of them was very was what made him great. And and I wanted to see who was most. Uh, responsible for that integration like who helped him put all that together and danaher was like well george was the innovator of all of this like this was all george wow and how like he's and like how he said i would show george like 10 or 15 moves in jujitsu and george would be like oh like this is good this is good but, but really only these two or three will work for me and how george was the one who kind of was a filter for all of that and how he'd kind of throw away all these other great techniques not because they weren't great, but because they didn't work for his style. And how he was like the one who, who figured out that, that uh, you know this works for mixed martial arts. This works for jujitsu, but not but not my game, not mixed martial arts. So like I think his IQ is terribly underrated. People think he's just this super athlete who who who, who came shooting out of a box and conquered the world. Whereas it was really his mindset, his, his ability to innovate, his thinking, his his fight IQ, I think was the biggest takeaway for me was how smart he is, and and when it comes to doing that, I mean, like if he were ever a coach, I, I can't think of a better coach than him. I mean, like I'm sure he has other things he wants to do, but man, like if he could be a coach and teach you teach you this mindset to integrate these things and innovate these things, I mean, people would be lucky, you know. Um, like I, I spoke with a guy, uh, I spoke with a D, uh, D, Daniel Jonas, uh, who's a, a great guy. Um, he trained trained at TriStar a few times and trained up there for a while. And said, "Oh, George is just one of the guys up there. He tra- he does some training sessions. Just a normal guy. He's not, you know, they don't roll out the red carpet for him. He's just a normal guy." And uh, Dan, Dan, uh, Daniel Jonas from a from a Southern Scrap uh, podcast is is very knowledgeable in that in that in that way. For Coleman, Coleman is. The funniest guy I think I have spoken with. And <laughs> I can see that. He is he is hilarious. He is. I mean, he has the best stories. He tells a great story. And when I was following him back in like 2001, he just seemed like a just a guy who just wants oh, to yeah. beat your face in. Yeah. Not the most personable guy. Not the funniest guy. He didn't seem like any of that to me. And he is, though. He's really a funny guy. And if I was to pick one person, like out of all the interviews, I've probably done over 100 interviews now in the past year and a half doing this. Of all the interviews I've done, he's probably my favorite because he's just so funny and surprisingly, he's he's surprisingly funny and not that 
not, not that I didn't think he was a good guy. Like I knew he was a good guy, right. but but just how funny he is and how warm he is and how cool he is. Um, he had great stories, like this one story. Well, the stories he told about Kevin Randleman were just fantastic for for, for, for Kevin's episode. But um, like one episode, one story he did that we put on. We have, we have a, a cutting room floor episode that's not in his documentary. It's called Enter MMA True Fan that he told a story about where he was on a Japanese game show and he had to... Yeah. Oh, that was ridiculous. Yeah. And trying to hold on for $50,000. Hearing him tell this story... I love how you guys narrated it too. It's so straight-faced. was made it great too. Like, Coleman had to rip a man's <laughs> off of a man. I was like, oh, Jesus. It's great. It's like... I, I mean, a guy literally had to hit the mute button sometimes, where it's like, you know, and I, and I don't have to do that very often, but, like, I had to hit the mute button this guy, because I'm, like, straight, I'm straight up laughing at what he's talking about this stuff, and he's dead serious, like, this guy's hanging out for $50,000, and I'm, you know, but uh, that one, and uh, hearing him talk about Gary Goodrich arm wrestling 2,000 Japanese guys in a, in a Japanese game show, but he, he is, like, not only the super athlete, and, and let's be honest, like in, in the late 90s, he was as far ahead of his time as anybody has ever been. I mean, like he was the first, one of the first real, true, world-class athletes to come in here and beat everybody up. Yep. And he did. He smashed their faces in. Just dominated people in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, but, but to hear him talk about those days and relive those days is fun. And that's one of the funnest parts about all this stuff is I take like Couture back to the Belfort fights. You know, these guys love talking about this stuff. They love talking yeah. about, you know, when, when, when they dominated the good old days, you know, yeah. to have someone like someone interested in hearing that, you know, talk about the good old days, and, you know, so like uh, that's one of the funner parts of the job. But to hear uh, Coleman tell these stories, like, you know, it's just, it's, I could not believe how good of a storyteller he is. This guy, he should have his own podcast. Like, he should have his own show. I don't know why he doesn't have his own show. Like, I almost want to call him up and be like, hey, man, like, just you and me, just unscripted. Let's just talk about the fights, you know, whatever. Talk about whatever you want to talk about. Like, you know, I'll just ask you a question, and I'll hit mute, and you go, because, like, that's that's how good he is. Like, he, he really is fantastic in that way. I uh, You reminded me a lot of um, Don Fry in the sense I had that, that same – kind of uh, perception of Don and then was able to meet Don through uh, my co-host George and Goes and um, just kind of the same experience. So to hear his exchanges and the respect that he pays Don, um, those are probably my favorite parts of that episode. I suggest everybody go and listen. Um, but you said Kevin Randleman, a uh, great segue uh, before we get out of here. You also forwarded me something on, I didn't realize this, but I'll let you frame it up as far as the documentary, who you spoke to, who the story comes from. But early 90s, back when Kevin Randleman's in his wrestling days prior to MMA, um, was a victim of police brutality. Right around the, you know, uh, Rodney King, O.J. Simpson, all these kind of uh, historic events, uh, I was not aware. Can you frame it up uh, kind of quickly before us? And and, and, and I, don't, I don't know if tease is the right word, but just uh, kind of complete the, the, uh, the tease that maybe I just gave. Yeah, um, well... This, this is from Kevin's episode, obviously. I was talking to Eric Smith, who was uh, one of Kevin's roommates in college and Kevin's best man. And Eric Smith was a former fighter. He fought Dan Henderson in Brazil back in, like, the, the mid-'90s. And um, But super nice guy and uh, re really, really fun to talk to. But, uh, you know, he knows Kevin as well as anybody. He was his best man at, at, at his wedding with, with Elizabeth. But um, he, he heard a story about how Kevin – back in the early 90s, like you said, um, 
had gotten beaten up by some cops. You know how how a, how a cop put a gun in his mouth. He got yeah maced by 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 cops one night down on uh, High Street, which is like the strip in Columbus, and uh, talked about how you know Kevin Kevin faced racism a, a, as a young man. And uh, I was going through some some clips for of Kevin's because with the Hall of Fame induction coming up. Excuse me. I wanted to try to put something together for a press release of people saying some interesting things about him, like you know, friends and family paying tribute to him, to give people a little more, give people a little more knowledge. I, I was going to send it out to some press people to to maybe do a story on it. And then I came across this one, and I was like, well, this is relevant right now, because police brutality is you know all over the headlines, and you know, and I mean, I I'm not trying to get too political, but I but I but I fully support this this reform. I you know I. I, I don't I don't I don't have a racist bone in my body, and um, you know I, I I came across this and I was like you know maybe I should put this in in with this little press release I'm doing on you know people th- saying what he's what he's good at now he's a good guy but to me I felt like that that, that kind of deserved its own its own little story because it's it's relevant today and um, it's told by someone who knows him well obviously Kevin can't tell that story anymore so may, maybe that story should be told you know I I don't know I don't know of any other fighters who who've had this kind of experience with, with police or, or if people find it relevant enough to talk about, I thought it was relevant, but you know, it's, it's not really up to me. It's up to the writers if they think it's relevant enough to write about. But, uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's what happened though. I mean, he was a, he was, he was, he was a victim of, of police brutality and he was such a good guy too. When yeah. you hear people talk about him, like, you know, some people talk, say, like how boss Rutten said, how people say, you know, all you know. People always say this guy will give the shirt off his back, whatever. But this guy will really do it. This guy, this guy really will give the shirt off his back. Yep. He really was one of the nicest people that I'd ever met. Oh yeah. You know, forget about the sport, just people that I've ever met. You know, and you know, and to see see this happen to him, it could happen to anybody. And that was kind of the point of, of sending it out. Yeah. No, that was great. I'm going to be looking more into that myself. Uh, sharing. Uh, sh- sharing that in the future as well as, you know, anything you guys do, of course, just in general on that note. Um, but I did want to bring that up because it is relevant. And to end maybe on a more positive note, uh, I want to share a story that I didn't get to share uh, on a previous podcast, so kind of apropos now. And again, just hearing those things like, you know, you, from, you know, experiences of racism, uh, hardships growing up to the opposite, maybe the entitlement you get as an athlete to the ego inflation from being a pro fighter. Like, all those things would have uh, stereotyped not a heartwarming guy, or you would have been not an excuse per se, but perhaps a reason to have this kind of an ego or that kind of an attitude. But to your point, in my brief experiences at Extreme Couture and Crossover with Randleman, was just a guy who lit up the room, a great character. Um, not even just at Extreme Couture, the MMA events out here tough enough, he would show up and support those. Uh, during their like pre-shows, even at like amateur or like low-budget MMA shows, he would be out there for s- promoting youth things that he was a part of. Um, he even did a cross promotion with my old uh, karate school, traditional martial arts school, when they were trying to make a last push into relevance. And Kevin Randleman was helping them out. Like it didn't matter what the cause, how high, low the perception of it. Uh, if it was a quote-unquote good cause, especially if it had to do with youth uh, martial arts or exercise. Uh, Randleman seemed a proponent of that. And I remember this one time, a uh, tough one alum, I don't know if people recognize his name, but Alex Schonauer. Oh, uh, yeah. He taught uh, MMA classes briefly. This is probably like 2007-ish, 2008, um, Extreme Couture in Las Vegas. 
And he's, you know, wrapping up the class, and he's like, okay, and he has kind of got the heavy Eastern European or whatever he is. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be ignorant. Or uh, confident. he's like, okay, everybody, that is uh, it for class. Any questions? And you just hear, Alex! Uh, like, like so you, uh, you know, kind of off from the background, and it's Kevin Randleman. And you just see Schoenauer look and go, oh, shit. And then all of a sudden, like a cartoon, you just hear the, the footsteps getting louder and heavier. And, and, and in the blink of an eye, he goes from across the gym to tackling Alex Schoenauer. And he's like, come on, I'm trying to teach class. Let me just, let me finish. And then, and of course, he proceeds to strangle Alex Schoenauer in a head and arm choke. And he taps him. And he goes, ah, I miss you, Alex. And Alex, like, not even listening to Schoenauer the whole time. And at which point, Schoenauer is just like, fuck you, man. What the fuck? I'm almost done with class. You're choking me out. <laughs> and it was just, like, that was the kind of prankster or just kind of a, he, you know, if he did use his size, it was for comical value. So, you know, I just, I'd never forget that um, moment. And from everything I hear in these interviews, like, that's who that guy was, man. So, extra tragic to hear things like that, but also extra deserving that he's a hall of famer and makes me uh, extra look forward to your future projects in regards to mr randleman yeah thank you very much and, and um thank you for having me today you know it was a great pleasure we're gonna we're gonna release hoist gracie um in august uh we have don fry frank shamrock anderson silva henzo henderson good gonna do some more after that release them every other month so we can stay ahead of it because it's a bit of a lengthy process and we don't we, we don't want to have too too big of a gap in between well, regardless if it's to uh, promote the next one, or maybe I gotta have you on one of my top five shows with your uh, with your length and knowledge, you'd be a great guest for one of those. Uh, either way, I would love to have you back on. But people, until then, yeah. be sure to follow uh, Nate over at at MMA True Fan. That's T R U F A N for people. Hello, excuse me, not watching us on YouTube, of course. Got it on the bottom of our screens here. Thank you. Hit the like. Hit the subscribe for this interview. And for those listening to the uh, 200 episodes of the Protecting Neck Podcast, thank you guys for your support. And uh, and Nate, thanks, thanks again, man, for coming on and just giving to the art and history side of our sport, man. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure, a great, a great honor to be on your 200th episode, and uh, can't wait to talk again sometime in the future. Thanks again. Man.